So I'd like to welcome all of you, our guests, our speakers and attendees to this event. My name is Sheila Galhini and I'm the CEO of Alcohol Action Ireland. Now this webinar uh, marks the publication of a new report which uses data from the Global Burden of Disease Study that highlights some of the impacts of alcohol on our health here in Ireland and it also puts forward some possible policy responses. It has resulted from a collaboration between ourselves, Alcohol Action Ireland, and the School of Public Health at UCC, and it was supported by a grant from the Irish Research Council. The lead researcher on the paper is Dr Zubair Kabir from UCC, and he'll be joining us from Cork to present the data and give some background to the GBD. He'll be followed by Anne Doyle from the Health Research Board, who'll be talking about the work of the HRB in examining alcohol data. I know we were just saying earlier, I'm always so grateful to have the HRB reports, which really help us to make the case around the need for progressive alcohol policies. Then we'll be moving eastwards to Scotland to our colleagues from SHOP. That's the Scottish Health Action on Alcohol Problems. Lindsay Graham and Eleanor Jean will be presenting jointly on alcohol data in Scotland and how SHOP have used it in their advocacy, particularly around the introduction of minimum unit pricing. In the alcohol policy world, Scotland is very often our go-to place with a you know, comparable sized population to Ireland and similar problems around alcohol. And I know we have learned an awful lot from the approaches in Scotland and, and hopefully there's also some areas where we can share our experiences as well. We'll be concluding by having a panel discussion and all our attendees, you're very welcome to put questions into the chat box and we'll do our best to get to them. So we'll get underway by introducing our first speaker, Dr. Zubair Kabir. Zubair is a trained public health doctor from India, and he's currently a senior lecturer at the School of Public Health in University College Cork, where he directs a multidisciplinary Masters of Health uh, Public Health programme, and he is highly research active. He's the primary researcher from Ireland on the Global Burden of Disease Study, and has co-authored more than 50 high-impact journal publications, including in Lancet and, the Nature, and Nature, through this global uh, collaboration. Dr. Kabir has extensive experience also in tobacco control, and he's the founding editor-in-chief of the Tobacco Use Insights Journal since 2008. I know that many of us in alcohol policy look with great interest and, dare I say, envy at uh, the progress in public health around tobacco control. So I think we'll be particularly interested to hear your insights, Zubair. So at this point, I'm going to hand over to, to you, Zubair, and uh, let you get going. Good afternoon, everyone. Um... Thank you, Sheila, for that kind introduction. As you see, uh, the opening slide, this is the topic I, which I'll be talking about. It's hard to disagree that we do not live in a world of uncertainty. And I hope the, the presentation today will have some relevance to this concept of uncertainty. So what I'll do briefly over the next 15 minutes, I'll go through two comprehensive reports which have been published recently, quote some statistics from there, and then try to go through some explanations of those statistics, and then have some final thoughts or remarks. The first report, as you see on the extreme right, is a comprehensive report published recently, last year, by the Health Research Board of Ireland. And we have colleagues in the audience from HRB, and also uh, our next speaker, Ms. Anne Doyle, was one of the co-authors of this comprehensive report. And then a few years ago, we have this 
landmark publication in the Lancet from the Global Burn of Disease team uh, in 2018, which looked at the alcohol attributable burden across 195 countries. So moving on, the HRB report shows that in 2019, on average, the Irish people is 15 and above, drank 10.8 liters of pure alcohol. And this is the gold standard. And this is crucially important to be correct in the estimates and process. We are not being great on the global map. Ireland has the ninth highest per capita alcohol consumption rate across the OECD member countries. And it impacts on our healthcare system. As you see, more than 40,000 alcohol-related hospital discharges occur each year in Ireland. Finally, the same report estimated that in 2017, there were 1,094 deaths. So in other words, on average, there were three deaths per day in Ireland due to alcohol. And this corresponds to 4% of all deaths. And most of the deaths, they occur under 65 years of age and which are considered to be the most productive age group. The same report, I quote two statements from the same report about these two key findings in terms of the per capita consumption and also the deaths. And they acknowledged that these two estimates are an underestimation. So we have to bear that in our mind. So moving on to the next comprehensive report published a few years earlier than the HRB report in 2018 is from the GBD 2016 study. The, this comprehensive report across 195 countries looked at the alcohol attributable burden by age, gender, location, time, globally, regionally, nationally, and locally. And they've used the same definition of who a current drinker is. But the key finding of this paper was that they concluded there is no safe level for alcohol consumption at the population level. So it's important, they also suggested that we need to revisit our current alcohol control policies. This is similar to the secondhand smoke exposure where there is no safe level of secondhand exposure. So GBD study, which was launched like 30 years ago in 1990 with a handful of researchers across the globe. And since then, they have been publishing estimates on a regular basis. They started every 10 years, every five years. Now, over the past few years, we have annual estimates. So the GBD study of 2016 has some global statistics that were close to 2.8 million deaths worldwide due to alcohol every year. And alcohol was ranked as the seventh leading risk factor 
for both premature death and disability. It's not just premature deaths, but also disability. But alcohol was the leading cause of death for the people who were most productive. And closer to home, I quote two estimates from the same report relevant to Irish population. The first one, as you see in the red, women in Ireland were ranked as the seventh highest consumers of average daily drinks. So there's a definition for what one standard drink means, which is equivalent to 10 grams of pure alcohol. And that stood at 3.1 for women in Ireland. And the second interesting finding was that the estimate that more than 2,700 deaths were attributable to alcohol. But you bear in mind, but those are estimates and they gave this 95% uncertainty interval. So these are all statistical inference at the population level. So the estimates can range anything between 1500 to 3200. So we see that these two estimates from two comprehensive reports published quite time to time have inaccurate or reliable estimates. So it's important for us to know which estimates are most accurate and reliable. But again, we have to bear in mind that we are comparing apples with oranges here. The data sources may be different. The estimates and process or the whole statistical modeling are different. So it's all about measurements. So in the context of alcohol, these are the two key parameters which we should be right. First, how do you estimate the population level alcohol consumption? And once you have that correct, but this is the gold standard. The second estimation is dependent on the population level exposure. Once you have that, then we try to assess the risk outcome distribution curve. It's a distribution curve of alcohol and the health related outcomes. The GBD data are considered to be big data. And the 2016 study, as you see from this slide, they took into account more than 1000 studies across the globe across 195 countries. But the beauty of these GBD studies are, it's a global collaborative effort. Now there are close to 7,000 global collaborators across more than 150 countries. And the GBD team, they are based at the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation in Seattle at the University of Washington. So what we gather now is there is this necessity to have a systematic and rigorous approach to produce high quality population health evidence. So GBD does that. They try to compare apples with apples. They partnered with the Lancet in 1990. And since then they have been publishing estimates across more than 200 countries by age, location, and year. 
for more than 350 diseases and injuries and more than 80 risk factors and alcohol is one of them. So GPD is a global enterprise. It's a, it's a flexible resource tool based on science through synset collaboration for robust health measurements. And these data are publicly available. GBD is aware of the methodological challenges, but they use a standardized methodology, which is very important, unless we have a standardized methodology and a standardized metric to harmonize the estimates, you cannot compare apples with apples. And the GBD has also solutions to those methodological challenges. Finally, how the compatibility is based in GBD studies is through this standardized metric called DALIs. I won't go into details how DALIs are estimated, but GBD provides the quantification of health loss due to a specific condition. It's not whether you die prematurely, but you are living, how long are you living in perfect health? So DALIs is a combination of both premature mortality expressed in years of life lost and morbidity as years lived with disability. And the second component is about risk factors. How do you estimate the burden due to risk factors? And alcohol is one of them through this comparative risk assessment framework. So we took that on into account for our recent estimation. We went into this GBD compare link where the data are publicly available and follow this comparative assessment to quantify DALIs and the deaths attributable to alcohol in Ireland for 2019. But there were new features to GBD 2019. As I mentioned, with each iterations, GBD may have access to more robust data, more strong epidemiological studies. For example, a recent systematic review has come up. So they take those into account. So likewise, in 2019, they had access to close to 500 new data sources, including data from Euromonitor to account for the supply side estimates and also to remove compositional bias. And as I said that to estimate the population level exposure of alcohol is the gold standard, they took into account three parameters. They factored into the proportion of abstinence drinkers, which is to the tune of 25%. They looked into the information related to tourism, how many of our Irish people go abroad and consume alcohol, and likewise, how many tourists come to Ireland and, and consume alcohol, which is to the tune of 2%, and then some unrecorded information, which may be due to illicit sales or home brewing, which is to the tune of 6%. So what GBD does with each iterations, the estimates become more robust, closer to truth, and the latest iterations supersede the previous iterations. So in the context of this findings of 2016, stating that there were 2,700 alcohol attributable deaths 
they were rescaled to close to 1500 alcohol attributable deaths in 2016. So based on that premise, we estimated that in 2019, in Ireland, there were 1,543 deaths due to alcohol. And as you see, there is a bound, 95% uncertainty interval. So it can range anything between 1,237 to 1,860. And that contributes almost 5% of all deaths in Ireland. And we rank them across disease conditions. As you see that uh, most of the alcohol attributable deaths are cancers or digestive diseases, mainly liver. And these are the uh, risk factor attributions, uh, which are based on, on systematic review and meta-analysis. For instance, if you look at self-harm, it says 27%, which means that of the total deaths due to self-harm and suicide in Ireland, which is for close to 400 for the year 2020, 27% of those can be attributable to alcohol. So assuming a causal relationship, if you eliminate alcohol consumption, then there will be 27% fewer deaths due to self-harm and suicide and, and, and uh, in Ireland, so which is powerful. Finally, we estimated that there were more than 60,000 dialysis lost due to alcohol. GBD uses powerful infographics and visualization tools. And here we see that the rank disorders between time periods. So here, 1990, alcohol disorders were ranked at 13. 30 years after, they went up and ranked at eight. When we looked at the number of death rates per 100,000 population over these 30 years, the death rates peaked around 2000 came down in recession. And in most recent years, we see that uh, it's going up. And this nicely mimics the alcohol consumption patterns. They picked around the same time period, 2001, hitting almost close to 15 liters per capita, came down during the recession, then post-recession went up, picked around 2016. And now we see no change, stable hitting at 10.8 liters per capita. And these are all related to affordability of alcohol. There were no sales tax in the beginning. Sales tax was there, recession kicked in, and now we have very low sales tax. So on reflections, it's very sad that four people die of alcohol every day in Ireland. That's 5% of all deaths. We got to have good health data governance. And we must strive towards data which are timely, systematic, comprehensive, accurate, and most importantly, comparable. So if you can compare apples with apples through the standardized metrics such as DALIs, you can assess the health performance, you can benchmark our health performance in Ireland against our neighboring or comparable settings. So my final remark is if you want to achieve better and robust estimates, we must make a sincere effort to work together to harness the data across the right stakeholders. I would like to acknowledge the IDC's Council for the New Foundation Award, my colleagues at the Alcohol Action Ireland,
and my student, Dr. Orla Kotar, who did all those preliminary analysis of GBD as a part of our MPH dissertation. Thank you for your attention. Thanks very much for that, uh, Zubair. And it is a very sobering note, I think, just that we end on. We think of you know four people dying today and another four people dying tomorrow. And um, I, I, I'm very just I'm very conscious anytime I talk about deaths and in this context, these are real lives, real people, individuals, families really suffering, uh, you know, from, from something that we would just love to be able to, to reduce. And um, I think actually your, your presentation really you know, brings that home. There's, there's so many different illnesses that, that can be impacted or can be affected. And being able to reduce our overall consumption, even just a bit, does make uh, a difference. I'm going to move on to our second speaker, Anne Doyle from the Health Research Board. And Anne is a research officer there. She focuses on alcohol research in her role, and that involves updating national alcohol surveillance figures and providing the Department of Health with information about the alcohol situation in Ireland in order to inform good decision making. Uh, I mentioned earlier our thanks to the HRB for their work on alcohol data, so I'm particularly pleased to welcome Anne and to hear more from her. Um, she was one of the authors of the, the recent uh, alcohol overview series, which uh, Zubair had just mentioned, and we had previously been talking with Anne on, on our um, podcast series as, as well. So I'm delighted actually to see you here. I was going to say in person. It does feel like in person. We see the face, so that, that's, that's even better. Okay, so thank you very much for that, Sheila. And thank you very much to Alcohol Action Ireland for inviting me to speak to you today about the data that we hold in the Health Research Board, the alcohol-related data. We have data that's key in informing us about our alcohol use and the consequences of that use. So today I'm just going to give you a, a very brief outline of what we do in the Health Research Board, our national information systems, our national prevalence survey on drug and alcohol use, the alcohol overviews, the National Drugs Library, and then how we use this data. So the Health Research Board, we are a state agency and we're under the Department of Health. We're broken down into three directorates and we today we're most interested in this one here, the Health Information and Evidence Directorate, which consists of the Evidence Centre and the National Health Information Systems. So it's those national health information systems. There are national databases. We have four in-house, um, three of which are alcohol related. And I'm just mentioning there for your information, the fourth one on the bottom right there is National Ability Support System, a disability database that collects service use and needs of people with intellectual, physical or sensory disabilities, as well as autism. But focusing on the other three databases, then firstly, the National Psychiatric Inpatient Reporting System. This is a database that collects all mental health disorders, but it's psychiatric units and hospitals, admissions and discharges, including deaths. And what we're interested to, in today is the alcohol-related conditions. So this figure here shows the number of alcohol-related diagnoses as reported to that database. And you can see here that following the publication in 2006 of the mental health strategy, there was quite a decrease in the number of alcohol-related conditions recorded on that database. This was because in as part of that strategy, alcohol-related conditions were recommended that they were treated in outpatient settings in the community rather than in psychiatric hospitals. 
But in fact, in 2020, the new mental health strategy has reversed that decision. And now if an individual has a dual diagnosis of um, a mental health condition, as well as a substance dependency, it is recommended that they are treated in psychiatric units if that's the most appropriate setting. So we will certainly be keeping an eye on that data to see how how it changes following that um, strategy publication. The next database is our National Drug Treatment Reporting System. This is a database that collects incidents of incidences of uh, alcohol and drug treatment, so where an individual has received alcohol or drug treatment. And this figure here shows the number of cases of alcohol-related cases reported to that database annually. Um, you can see it's remained fairly static over the years with a drop-off there in 2020, which reflects the the COVID pandemic and obviously a lot of services would have been closed so we did expect that decrease but again we will watch that data to hopefully that um, more people do attend for treating, treatment now that the services are opened again. We also then just looked at alcohol as an additional problem substance and um, so where an individual might have received treatment due to another substance they can list other problematic substances and this increases our alcohol related treatment figures by up to about a third of cases. So it, it bumps up the figures considerably. We also have the National Drug Related Deaths Index. This database collects all alcohol and drug related deaths. Um, it collects poisoning deaths, which are poisoning deaths would be the direct result of the toxic effects of, a, of drugs and or alcohol. It also collects non-poisoning deaths and non-poisoning deaths are those um, where the individual had a history of alcohol dependency or where the coroner has specifically implicated alcohol as being implicated in the death on the death certificate. And this figure here gives an indication of the number of deaths um, annually, that the number of alcohol-related deaths that have been recorded on that database. And you can see that males significantly outnumber females. And it's been fairly static as well. As Zubair already mentioned, it's averaging on over a thousand deaths annually. Our sister unit then is the Evidence Centre, and the Evidence Centre consists of an evidence team. This is a team of researchers who carry out evidence reviews on behalf of the Department of Health, and that could be on any health-related topic. But what we're interested in today is the Drugs and Alcohol team, which includes the National Drugs Library as well. So one of our key roles in the National Drugs and Alcohol team is to carry out the prevalence survey. And this is a survey of drug, alcohol and tobacco prevalence patterns of use. It includes or it has a representative sample of the general population. We also collect gambling activities as part of that survey. And you may have seen a couple of weeks ago, there was um, the gambling report was published. And it has a lot. It's very interesting to see because there's a lot of overlap with alcohol as well. So our our prevalence survey has been undertaken five times every, about every four years and the most recent was published just last year and that's the, an image of it there on the right and some very top line findings from the most recent survey are that there has been a decrease in the number of drinkers aged 15 to 64 so we can go back to the very first survey there was 84 percent of the adult population were drinkers this has reduced slightly to 78 percent in the most recent survey 
Another good news finding is that the median age for alcohol initiation among school children has increased. So back in 2002, your average 16 year old had started drinking and that's now, um, sorry, at 17 years. Uh, sorry, that's increased now to 17 years um, in the most recent survey. So that school children are delaying alcohol initiation, which is certainly a welcome finding. However, we do remain a nation of hazardous and harmful drinkers, with uh, binge drinking being quite common. One third of drinkers typically consume six standard drinks per typical occasion. That is the official classification for binge drinking. And when we stratify that by, by gender, it increases to half of, of male drinkers would typically binge drink. Also, that survey reported that almost 15% of the adult population in Ireland would be classified as having an alcohol use disorder. And that corresponds to well over half a million adults or one in seven adults. And so that's quite a startling figure as well. We also carry out in the Health Research Board alcohol overviews, and these overviews would include all the data just mentioned, but also multiple, multiple other sources. It's basically a collation of as much information um, that we can get our hands on um, we, to look at alcohol use and its consequences. Uh, we can track trends over time and make international comparisons where possible. And the most recent of which there was, as Zubair mentioned earlier, it was published last year. And as Zubair mentioned already, uh, these are just some top line findings from that. It's the level of, of alcohol that we're drinking. So in 2019, 10.8 litres. And as almost a quarter of the population don't drink, these figures are actually considerably higher. Um, we're also high, ninth highest per capita drinkers and we're eighth highest for our levels of binge drinking. We also looked at HYPE data. This is hospital inpatient inquiry scheme data, which looks at dis hospital discharges. And we requested the data on alcohol-related hospitalizations for the overview. And that found that over 40,000 uh, um, discharges from hospitals were alcohol-related, almost annually, sorry, I should add, and almost 3,500 discharges for alcoholic liver disease. And of note as well was that the mean length of stay for alcohol-related conditions was 10 days as opposed to six days for non-alcohol-related conditions. So just an emphasis there on the level of costs, basically, to the hospitals as well, because they're a longer length and complicated to treat. So as well as the, I mentioned just briefly, the National Drugs Library, our National Drugs Library is a valuable and reliable source of information on substance use. And it's for anyone who has an interest or who's working or studying in the area of substance use. And it's uh, funded by the Department of Health. And I've got a, a link to the, the website at the end, but it's a, an amazing resource that I'd encourage anyone to use. And so how we use this data, it is used to inform decision-making, policy, service delivery. It um, is used to monitor the impact of the Public Health Alcohol Act. It also would have been used um, as evidence uh, to highlight how we need such legislation in Ireland. And we also play a role in the national drug strategy. And we would regularly publish our data from the information systems and from the prevalence survey through bulletins, annual reports, papers, the alcohol overview, as I just mentioned. And we do requests for information so an individual can request data from the systems for publications or for whatever use. It's also used for our HRB publication, the Drugnet Ireland. 
So finally, just to highlight that um, that's just a flavour of the valuable resources that we have in the Health Research Board. The data is open to researchers or to anyone basically with an interest or who's working or studying in the area. There's interactive tables for the treatment data available on the HRV library website and the psychiatric treatment data is available on the CSO website so you can manipulate the data yourself. And the deaths data, you would have to request it, but we really would encourage anyone who has an interest in it to, to request the data. It's there to be used and we, we love to see it being used. And also that was very much an overview of, of what we do in the Health Research Board, but it represents decades worth of data collection and thousands upon thousands of statistics. And as Sheila mentioned, every statistic represents a person whose life has been seriously impacted by alcohol use. And for every person, there's a family, there's a workplace, and there's a whole community that have been impacted by alcohol. And this data just gives you a flavour of the, the level of alcohol-related harms in Ireland. Um, and we would encourage, you know, it highlights the need for the remaining sections of the Public Health Alcohol Act to be commenced ASAP. So thank you very much. That was very brief, a whistle-stop tour of the Health Research Board, and I'm really happy to take any questions that you might have. Thank you. Thanks very much. And um, there is just such a wealth of data and information, you know, it's stored within that. And I, I, I know myself, like just how we frequently just turn to, to yourselves to, to get uh, the data. I see a question actually just came up, um, Marianne Rackard actually there, and just talking about those differences in, in how we might measure you know, deaths from alcohol, whereas previously we'd perhaps been talking about three deaths per day. And, you know, Zubair and the, the GBD data, which is, is modeling data, is, is suggesting it's more like, you know, four deaths uh, a day. And probably no matter which we use, they're, they're, they're both awful. I, I think it's probably fair to say that um, the way in which we had been measuring, uh, you know, to, to date, we, we knew it to be an underestimate because I, I think, as you would say, it, it was drawn very precisely. Things like, you know, certain conditions actually being actually named on, on the death certificate, uh, things like that. And actually, there was a report out recently from ESL, um, also in collaboration with The Lancet, about liver disease. And they were looking right across Europe and, you know, said, gosh, you know, the deaths in Ireland from, you know, around liver disease look low given the level of alcohol that is being consumed. So they, they sort of queried as well, gosh, there, there, there's a, there, there is a mismatch or an imbalance or something there. So I think, you know, but we are maybe moving towards just finding a, another way of, uh, or other ways, I should say, of, uh, of, of measuring that and perhaps, you know, using that figure of uh, four deaths, you know, per day. I hope it would make a difference. You know, it shouldn't make a difference. In one sense, it shouldn't be making a difference, um, but it's just, it is highlighting. And I think when I think, about you know the deaths and the illnesses, I think an awful lot of people just don't realise the risk that there is from alcohol uh, as as a thing in, in itself. That um, they perhaps think it's it's somebody else who would be affected, not maybe myself. You know that my drinking could could actually you know har harm this way. And I think as Zubair was you know pointing out from the GBD you know, the, uh, report back in 2016 that there simply was no safe level of, um, yeah. of, of, yeah. of drinking and mm -hmm. uh, that's maybe just Thank more you, the point that we need to be making there is no safe safe level of drinking and uh, I suppose when we think about implementing the PHAA we'd be thinking one of those things is putting labels putting health uh, information labels on alcohol okay and thanks a million for, for that we'll move on to our third presentation this afternoon 
We're actually going to move over, move east, but over to Scotland to our colleagues who are at the Scottish Health Action on Alcohol Problems, or SHAP. SHAP was set up in 2006 by the Medical Royal Colleges in Scotland, and I think is based within the Royal College of Physicians in Edinburgh. And I think it was set up really as a result of the concern from clinicians at the escalation in alcohol-related health damage in Scotland. Uh, it represents health professionals in Scotland and it provides consistent expert advice and advocating for effective solutions to reduce alcohol related harms. And I know that for any of us who are working in, in alcohol policy, you're, you're one of those sets of people that we will often turn to and we, we, we get very, very useful information from you there. So we have two speakers from SHAP today. We're going to begin with uh, Dr. Leslie Graham. Leslie is a member of the steering group for, for SHAP. Uh, she is a retired public health doctor and she was the public Health Lead for Alcohol, Drugs and Health and Justice for the Information Services Division of the National Service of Scotland. And I think that's now known as Public Health Scotland. She has worked extensively in the alcohol field in the areas of epidemiology, advocacy, policy and evaluation, as well as research both in Scotland and internationally. And she is a founding member of SHAP. And she'll be joined then by her colleague, Eleanor Jane. Uh, Eleanor joined SHAP as director back last year in July 2021. She has a wealth of experience in influencing policy and representing organisations in Scotland and the UK. And I know you've worked in a, a range of sectors and a number of issues, most recently headed up the influencing team at uh, the healthcare charity Sue Ryder. And prior to that, uh, she was with the Royal College of Nursing. So I'm going to hand over. I think, Eleanor, you're going to share the slides to start with, but it's actually Leslie who will be speaking first. Thanks very much. Thanks very much, Sheila. And uh, thanks also to Zubair and Anne for interesting presentations. So the organisation I used to work for was very is very similar to the one that Anne works for. And some of the data collection that we uh, also do in Scotland is not uh, dissimilar to what goes on in Ireland. But just a caveat to some of the statistics that I'll be talking through, they're not necessarily directly comparable to the Irish ones, and that's the point that Zubair was, was making, but they are not far off, but um, just, just a caveat there. So my first slide, this is a slide showing alcohol-specific deaths in Scotland over time. So those are deaths that are 100% attributable to Scotland. And you can see that around about the early 1990s, um, we start to see an upward trend happening. Now, in actual fact, at that moment in time, there weren't any alcohol-specific statistics being published in Scotland. We had no routine reporting. So we were sort of sleepwalking our way into this alcohol epidemic. However, around 2002, funding was granted and uh, my organisation was given money to set up an alcohol team, which I led on. And we began to publish specific alcohol statistics, um, including on a website, and those statistics have been acknowledged as being influential in driving the agenda, in particular for minimum unit pricing. Moving on to this next slide, this was, was also an influential paper published in The Lancet uh, showing chronic liver disease mortality, which is known to be a marker of alcohol harm. And this is slide is showing um, other European countries in the black line um, and demonstrating that Scotland, England and Wales were really out of step with the rest of Europe and Scotland in particular. And this we call one of the scary graphs. And it was one that particularly caught the attention of the politicians at the time. 
Now, two key drivers we've already heard of alcohol consumption are availability and affordability. And both of those have been increasing in Scotland over this time. And this graph is showing affordability. So as the, as the line goes up, that means alcohol is becoming more affordable, it's becoming cheaper. So you can particularly see that the top two lines are the off-trade. And we knew at the time that supermarkets in particular were you know, using alcohol as a loss leader to drive footfall. So moving on, in 2006-07, uh, we established Scottish Health, alcohol, uh, Scottish Health Action on Alcohol Problems. And one of the first things uh, that we did, and I led on it, was to conduct a policy review. So drawing heavily from WHO and particularly No Ordinary Commodity, you know, what are the most effective policies? What are the best buys? So we've concluded that price was right up there as one of the best buys, and our initial manifesto called for stronger pricing policies. And around about this time, alcohol was increasingly being covered in the media. And then in 2007, the Scottish National Party win the election for the Scottish Parliament, albeit with the minority, but with the political will to tackle alcohol harms. So in what did we do in SHAP? Um, we decided to convene an expert workshop um, to look at price along the lines of a sort of parliamentary committee. So we um, heard evidence, including from the alcohol industry, and we conducted extensive background research ourselves. We also uh, commissioned legal advice, both um, for Scottish law, but also European law. And we produced this report, Price Policy and Public Health, which was calling for the policy of, of minimum unit pricing as an alcohol policy, um, which is, as we know, is, is setting a floor price for a unit of alcohol. And as well as sort of proposing this policy, there was also a, a, a reframing of alcohol policy to a public health paradigm to be a population-based approach. And that contrasted, which was very prevalent at the time, with the industry approach was that alcohol problems are just a small minority of people that drink too much. That's where we should concentrate our efforts. And quite honestly, that was also the preferred UK government policy approach as well. So this was a big shift in, in, in approach. So minimum unit price didn't really exist anywhere in the world. Um, but that's not to say that the uh, policy is not based on evidence. The evidence foundation that the policy is built on is the relationship between alcohol price, alcohol consumption, and harm. As the price of alcohol falls, consumption rises, and so does harm. And this is an old graph, but it's illustrating quite eloquently the relationship between consumption of alcohol and price. So the dark line, the very darker line is price. As that goes down, consumption rises. So in 2009, the Scottish Government published um, a, a new strategy, the alcohol framework with MUP in that framework. And just to point out that that framework, um, we're talking about evidence today and the importance of that, that had over 100 references, which for a strategy, I think is, is, is quite remarkable. We also made sure to build in that we would evaluate the alcohol strategy. So monitoring and evaluating Scotland's alcohol strategy is a programme of work called MISAS. So we built that in right at the beginning. And given that we didn't have 
sort of an evidence base as such. What we also did was commission the University of Sheffield to model uh, econometric modelling of what MUP and other pricing policies could do. There was a very bumpy debate. The alcohol industry has had suddenly sort of woken up to what was going on in Scotland. Um, and at that point in time, I'd actually gone into the uh, Scottish government to work with alongside the alcohol policy team. Now, because it was a minority government, the, the legislation uh, did not pass at that time. But in 2011, the SNP were re-elected and we passed the legislation in 2012. Now, it had what's called a sunset clause. And that was the idea that was after five years, we would hit the pause button a comprehensive review would be done. And if the legislation hadn't been working, it would not continue on. So that was actually quite important to try and get that over the line. However, the Scottish Whiskey Association took the Scottish government to court. There was a lengthy battle all the way to Europe and back. However, in 2017, Scottish government won uh, the UK's Supreme Court ruled that MUP was was legal and it was implemented in Scotland in 2018. So what's happened since? So in the 12 months since implementation, there's been a fall in alcohol consumption as measured by alcohol sales data, and this is per adult over 16, from 10.2 litres to 9.9. Alcohol-specific deaths, which are um, been showing earlier on, they fell by 10%, reversing an upward trend from 2012. But along came COVID, um, disrupting all of our lives, but also reporting of routine statistics. However, uh, we were able to report on consumption in 2020, which has fallen for a second year to 9.4 litres per adult. And there was a fall in alcohol-related hospital admissions, and that's including psychiatric admissions as well as admissions into acute hospitals. However, there was a 17% rise in alcohol-specific deaths in 2020. Now, it's plausible that those deaths are being driven by an increase in drinking in those already drinking heavily. And there are some sources uh, that are pointing to that, um, but we've not got our big national surveys uh, running at the moment. So just for me to conclude, um, despite uh, early promising signs, I think we really probably need to wait for that MISAS report um, to make a full call on the effectiveness or not of minimum unit price, particularly um, in the context of COVID. I'm now going to hand over to Eleanor Jane for um, the rest of our session. So um, just to conclude, really, and build, or build on what Leslie was saying and conclude, we do know that it seems that the initial data that was collected after the introduction of minimum unit pricing in Scotland demonstrated that it was effective in reducing alcohol harms. But also, as Leslie said, COVID has driven a coach and horses through um, everything to do with alcohol, whether it's our consumption patterns, whether it is the provision of healthcare services for people with alcohol problems, or whether it is the actual collection of data in relation to alcohol. So now we really are in a difficult position in terms of interpreting that data. So after an initial good start, we are in a, a tricky position. Why it's important, this is why this is why it's important that the Scottish Government doesn't just look at this data, but does use the expertise of others around it. One of them being um, clinicians who can interpret some of this data that sometimes maybe appears to conflict with each other. So for instance, the data that showed that alcohol-related hospital admissions went down whilst alcohol 
deaths caused entirely by alcohol went up at the same time. Clinicians can explain what was going on in the health service and how those deaths occur in order to um, give some context to that. So it's really important that all expertise is brought to the table in terms of interpreting this data. And what we also know is that in the real world, that data is a very important part of what's going to happen next with minimum unit pricing. The sunset clause that the Scottish government now has to adhere to in terms of the legislation, which means it could fall, means that the Scottish government does have to introduce um, to Parliament a very comprehensive business regulatory impact assessment, which will draw on all these various sources of data, all the MESAS data, other sources, and bring that all together in order to then put it before Parliament for scrutiny and then a vote on this flagship piece of legislation. So that's um, going to be a really important next step in terms of data. But it's also an opportunity for the alcohol industry to pick this data apart and try to use it to make the case for preventing the legislation from continuing. And we completely expect this. In in Shap's mind, um, ahead of the sunset clause, it would be really helpful if we're going to have um, an uplift an uprating in the level of MUP from 50p to 65p to hopefully um, test just how effective the legislation is and to demonstrate how effective it is. So that, um, but anyway, now it seems that sadly time is against us because that sunset clause is actually in just over a year's time. So it seems unlikely that even if we do see an uprating in the level of MUP, that it's actually going to be um, taking place in, term, in time for any data to be used ahead of that um, vote. As an aside, interestingly, the the industry itself is quite reluctant to share much of its sales data. So that's just an interesting aside, I think. In conclusion, I would argue that data is invaluable in helping us to identify problems and in terms of evaluating policy impact, as this case study has hopefully demonstrated, but it must be presented in a way that makes sense. It needs to be presented with policy solutions and you need to build support with allies from wherever you can find them, basically inside and outside of politics. This is essential, particularly when you're going up against the heavily resourced alcohol industry that is often choosy with the facts and data that it uses. So you need to find make the case at the right time. And also it does take a quite a large dose of luck quite often in terms of your timing and what else is going on in the outside world. But all this, it's worth, in, in our, it's our view that it's worth investing all this time and ed- energy into this in terms of making the case for policies that are ultimately going to be worth taking forward if they're going to reduce the number of people suffering the multiple harms caused by alcohol. Thanks very much for that, Elmer and Lindsay. And indeed, as you were saying, data is tricky. Um, but one of the things actually, just coming back to the, the ideas around policy, very often when we start talking about alcohol, we're often met with this kind of fatalistic, oh, you know, it's Ireland, whatever, you know, it's the culture, is this, is that, the other. But actually, this is a problem with solutions. You know, there, there, are, there are other very big problems out there, climate change no matter, and, you know, other big things that which, where solutions are quite difficult to find. But we're actually living in a world where we have evidence-based solutions where we can see, you know, controls around price, marketing, availability. They actually really do, do work. So I want to just maybe open up with our, our panel again. We've been talking a lot about the, the data, but the other Part really of uh, the, of the title of um, of our webinar today was look if we don't measure it 
we can't manage it. So I just wanted to think about those ways of, of managing and you know what, what else might be, be out there. And I'm, I, I'm aware I have the floor, so I'm going to hog it just for a moment and put forward something that, uh, that we, we have been talking about. And we do mention it in this, this paper, this idea of um, the need for a, a state-sponsored office, a statutory state-sponsored office that would, if you like, take the lead both on policy development um, around alcohol, but that would be specifically focused on alcohol harm, on prevention, on treatment and, and care. Because I think at the moment, we, we certainly feel that a lot of alcohol policies are spread across a range of different departments. We have licensing and justice. We have, uh, you know, economic impacts. We have the Department of Finance who look at the tax base or whatever is that. We have health who take this enormous chunk of their budget, over ten percent, you know, at least going on, on on alcohol things. And yet, where is where where is where does where does the centre for driving alcohol policy actually lie? And I, I think there's a question mark there. So just throwing that out there. If uh, if anyone had any any comments on that as as maybe a, a way to go. I've got to say, from a Scottish perspective, that would be great. We're in a slightly different situation in that many, well, some of the policy levers around alcohol rest in Westminster. So we have a sort of double, another complication to sort of throw into the mix, I guess, in that there's two legislatures that we need to deal with in Scotland. So, but yes, from a, I think, a, trying to have it a centralised approach and looking from a public health perspective would be the ideal scenario for us in Scotland. I, uh, I actually see a question coming up here from Angela King, who just coming back to it, and uh, Angela's just thanking you both for your, your presentation there, and she's wondering if we have similar data here around tracking affordability and availability uh, of of, um, of alcohol. So if I, if I can just add a couple of things there, uh, as Alcohol Action Ireland, we would have conducted an annual survey on, on, on price, where our specific thing was to look for where's the cheapest alcohol available. And we would have seen consistently that you could get very cheap alcohol, very widely available. But um, the CSO would um, have, have data around alcohol. And actually just saw a very interesting um, piece of data from them last week. I just love the CSO. There was loads of data and you, when you, you dig down deep into it. But it actually did give us a very nice graph on which tracked the, the average price of alcohol over, over the last couple of decades. And it is just incredible to see that how it has just gone down and it got cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. So that's that's one particular place where you can can look to find that if, if, uh, if, if people are, are interested. Okay, and I think a decrease in, in license of, of off licenses, yes, and indeed. There, there is data actually within the HRB on off license, is that right? Um, there is some, yes, and um, we try and keep it updated um, from the revenue statistics that are available. Yeah, try to cover that in the overview as well. And that, I think that just it, it, it demonstrates just how many different aspects to, to alcohol that, that there, there is, you know, because that. The price of something, the availability of where you can get it, how much advertising we're, we're exposed to—that's something that we haven't really, you know, d- discussed here. But it is—I um, mean, we we certainly know there's, there's very good evidence that that would show, certainly show that for children who are exposed to alcohol advertising, they're much more likely to drink, and unfortunately, much more likely to be drinking, you know, drinking in a in a particularly harmful way. And I, I was struck on when you, you mentioned actually about the. Um, the, the, the almost 15% of our population who would have an alcohol use disorder. But actually, when you look at the, the younger population, so 15 to, to 24 year old. Much higher. Yeah, it's 37% of 15 uh, to 24 year olds would be classified as having an alcohol use disorder. I think that's startling. 
Yeah, it's it's an incredible figure. And I really think that that tracks back to, um, you know, that level of of alcohol marketing that that we're exposed to. And of course, that isn't just, you know, the advertisement you see on TV, though that is is very important as as well. And one of the reasons why we would certainly like to see the the broadcast watershed for alcohol advertisements coming into into play. But I think increasingly as well, you know, so many of our our children, um, and indeed ourselves, myself included, live your life online. So the amount of advertising that you see online is, is, is very much, and I think actually a very insidious form of marketing because it is tailored directly to you, to, to your interests that you have in the palm of your hand. And also um, it, it's not as visible to others what you are actually seeing. Uh, you know, at, at least when you're looking at TV, everybody sees it and, you know, everybody's in the room sees and knows that's what you, you've seen. Whereas, um, you know, from a parenting point of view, you you don't know what what our, our children are actually seeing. And, and it's very... Um, I find that marketing too very, uh, it, it's so engaging. You become part of the advertising. You're sharing it. You're playing games with it. It, it isn't as passive as just looking at, at something. You know, it's that. very clever, isn't it? Because, you know, there's even types of drinks that are targeted at young girls, we'll say, and or young boys. So you can see a difference in, in what young people are drinking. And that's, uh, there's been some research on it recently, but it's certainly an area we'd like to look into a little bit more, that kind of gender specific marketing for young people. Yeah, I, th- I think um, as we, we often talk about a very clever industry and, you know, you, we would have seen, you know, lower you know, women drinking less than, than men. So therefore, we would see this as a, a, an opening of the industry. Sorry, I would see it as, a, as an opening, you know, so there's a market there to be to be exploited. So Bear, you have your hand up there. Yeah, th- thanks, Sheila. And and also I want to draw some parallels, you know, about tobacco control and alcohol control policies. And you alluded to that, Sheila, like there are a lot of commonalities. You know, we can learn lessons from that. So tobacco control, if you go back in time 20 years ago, the same tactics were played by them as the alcohol, uh, big alcohol are playing these days. You know? So, so uh, why not, uh, instead of reinventing the field, you know, um, we, we can apply those best buys, as, as Leslie mentioned, you know, of WHO, uh, and, and uh, get a population level reduction. So it's... Uh, uh, more like uh, a population approach, which Leslie again kind of hinted at, uh, making more structural uh, changes uh, rather than going something like an individual agency type of approach, you know, which may not be very cost effective. And so I, because of my experience in tobacco control, I think uh, we can adapt a few of those policies and, and um, hopefully achieve that Ten, nine, less than nine liters per capita target, you know, which is way back 2020 and in 2022. So, and a um, long way to go. Thank you. And of course, like the, uh, the, the huge difference between alcohol and, and tobacco, I thought was the, you know, that framework convention that we have this global uh, convention. And that has driven, I think, the acceptability of making changes uh around tobacco um you know that 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 that, that is really the, i suppose something we would just love to see in, in, a, in an alcohol sense um and it really would it would help matters enormously it's, it's funny actually i received an email there just inviting to, to a no smoking day that's next wednesday and which is great so, you know it's a health initiative excellent and i thought to myself gosh imagine we circulated a, a, a no drinking day or no alcohol day i just thought oh my gosh you know <laughs> what what would be the reaction we accept uh the the need for tobacco control but we're 
we're just a little way off being able to accept that. And yet, when you ask people individually, we, we did some survey data actually just asking people about, you know, their opinion on controls on advertising and people are actually very happy i've never met anyone who said i wish i saw more alcohol advertising you know so so i think we should start where we can see that people actually do and they do appreciate and that 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 does make a make a difference okay well i have tried my best to keep us us on time um we're at uh, just four minutes past uh, one o'clock but i was late starting so I'll, I'll, I'll apologize for that this has been very much a whistle stop tour and i'm very very conscious that we, we had people coming and joining us from different parts of the country and i'm aware that other people have other meetings and lunch or whatever to get to so i'd like to just bring things to a close at the moment i did put a link to the paper um in the chat box where you can find it on our website if you're looking to get that it just really remains for me to to thank all of our, our guests today and to our audience and uh, to the IRC who funded us and I particularly though would like to a, a very special word of mention to our intern student Christina Kitt who's actually at UCD and she did absolutely Trojan work on the DVD data analysis both for this paper and, and, and other research Christina's in her, her final year in college and we'll be watching with interest what she does next I'll leave it there but thank you indeed thank you.